Well, I'm sure uh, everybody has heard the news of what happened in Aurora, Colorado, um, just after midnight on Friday morning, when uh, James Egan Holmes brought, bought a ticket for the, the premiere of Batman, The Dark Knight Rises, and then about 20 minutes into the movie, uh, went out through an emergency exit and came back in um, with, uh, with a gas mask and body armor and uh, lobbed what the police believe was, was uh, tear gas into the theater and then opened fire on the crowd, um, killing 12 and, and wounding 58. And uh, the, in, the, in the chaos um, and, and the, on the terror that, that followed, people really trying around the world are really trying to piece together what happened and, and why something like this would happen. And of course, this, this probably hits home for many of us. I mean, I was just in a movie theater last week. And I'm sure many of us have, have been to the movies recently and, and could probably did probably picture themselves in that scene and, and wondered how they would have responded if, if something like that came down around them. And it probably would, would leave us all with a number of, of questions in our minds, questions like, um, how could a human being commit such a horrific act of violence? And, and how could God let such things take place? And what will happen to James Holmes? And even though the world doesn't realize it, all of these are really theological questions. They're theological questions and really are ultimately questions of God's justice. And that, in God's providence, is what we're going to be talking about this morning, God's justice. And really, if you want to understand God's justice, then you really have to go to God's Word. No matter how much the world tries to make sense of these things, they never will because they are looking at it from a wrong frame of reference. They're looking at it from their sinful human standards. In their fallenness, they are unable to understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. But throughout God's Word, we see that the Bible has a great deal to say about God's justice. And one really clear example of this is the situation with Abraham. Now, many of us, hopefully all of us, are familiar with, with God's special relationship with Abraham, with the covenant that he made with Abraham, but there is a story that runs parallel to that, and that, that has to do with, with Abraham's left nephew, Lot. And it's found there in, in Genesis, uh, starts in, in 13, and then goes on from there. We see, first of all, that Abraham and his nephew parted company because their shepherds, those who were tending their flocks, were, were arguing and quarreling, quarreling amongst themselves over the pasture land. So, so Abraham said, well, even though, even though Abraham was the patriarch and, and he had first pick of the land, he deferred to his nephew and he said, you pick where you want to go. And so Lot put his eyes towards Sodom and Gomorrah and pitched his tent there. And then, as we know, the, the story that focuses on Abraham and his covenant with God over the, the ensuing chapters, but then in chapter 18 comes back again to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there in verse 16 of chapter 18, we see that, that the Lord and apparently two angels appear to Abraham, telling him that his wife his wife who had been barren is going to bear a son, even in her old age. And then these angels turn their attention towards Sodom in verse 20. And the Lord says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And the Lord tells Abraham that he is going to deal with the situation. He is going to address what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that his justice was going to be executed. Now, Abraham knew exactly what that meant. He knew what was going on down in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And he was obviously concerned because his nephew Lot and his family were there. So, so Abraham interceded. Abraham prayed for the city in hopes that God would have mercy on Lot and Lot's family. So he says to the Lord, Will you indeed sweep away, with the, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he went on, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous? Sorry, what about if there are 50 righteous people? Would you sweep it away and not spare it for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? So Abraham here appealed to God's justice, knowing that God would not, could not act unjustly. Abraham knew that God would punish justly and that God would save justly. And then Peter similarly uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's justice. If you turn please to 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 6 to 10. 2 Peter 2, 6. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of their sinful nature and despise authority. So Peter here is saying, just as we saw that Abraham believed that God is righteous, God is just to save justly and to destroy justly. So we know what happens next. God rains down fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but delivers Lot and his family. Delivers Lot and his family, but we know that Abraham's, or sorry, that Lot's wife turned back and looked back at the city as though she was longing for the life that she had there, and she too was destroyed along with those cities. So here we see that God is faithful and righteous and just as he executes wrath on the wicked and as he delivers the righteous. As Tozer explains, justice embodies the idea of moral equity, and iniquity is the exact opposite. It is inequity, the absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. Judgment is the application of equity to moral situations and may be favorable or unfavorable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in heart and conduct. But maybe the example here of, of Lot is surprising to you. It, it probably should be. When you see some of the things that, that Lot did, it's puzzling that God would call him righteous Lot. He says that twice there in, in 1 Peter 2. That Lot is called righteous Lot. And I'll come back to why that is a little bit later on. We've seen again and again how God's attributes are, are interconnected. His justice is the expression of his holiness and his righteousness. God is committed to his holiness, so he always carries out justice. I'll say that again. God is committed to his holiness, so he always carries out justice. He cannot let one sin go unpunished, but not because of some standard that is outside of himself, 
But God cannot let one sin go unpunished because he is the standard. God sets the standard for righteousness. So when he acts justly, he is acting according to his nature. He's acting according to his nature. God always acts in a way that is just because he is perfectly just, eternally, infinitely, and immutably just. But as we've seen, God's wrath is a necessary part of God's justice. It's part of it. It's part of it, no matter how little we like to think about it. When I pick the hymns each week, I, I really try to pick hymns that, that will reflect the, the character of the message and will help to reinforce the things that I'm going to be preaching on. It's really, really hard to try to find a hymn that talks about God's wrath. It's really hard. People do not like to think about God's wrath. That is not something that our mind naturally gravitates to. But God's wrath, as I said, is a necessary part of his justice and is therefore glorious. It's glorious. God's wrath is glorious. We saw there in Psalm 96 that the whole creation rejoices because God is coming to bring justice. We read about it in, in Romans chapter 8 that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, that, that the creation has been subjected to futility. The creation longs for God's justice to come. And there in Psalm 96, we see the heavens rejoicing, the earth is glad, the sea resounds, the fields are jubilant, the trees are going to sing. Because God is coming to judge the earth. God is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge perfectly. He will judge justly. Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Isaiah 5.16, The Lord of, the hosts is a, Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9.24, Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God's justice is necessary because it is a part of who he is, just as much as his love and his mercy are a part of who he is. And God's justice is necessary because he is loving and merciful. Because without justice, his love and his mercy are diminished. Because without justice, there's no need for, for mercy. There's no need for grace. Stephen Charnock the Puritan said that justice would draw the sword and drench it in the blood of the offender. Mercy would stop the sword and turn it from the breast of the sinner. So in God's love, mercy, and grace, he will bless those who he deems righteous and protect his children. And in Psalm 37, 28, we read, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. So this morning we're going to see how God is just to punish the unrighteous. We're also going to see how God's justice is perfectly displayed in the gospel. And then we're going to see how we should seek justice because of God's justice. So first of all, point one, God is just to punish the unrighteous. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of my time because in the remaining weeks where we study God's attributes, the other Elements of this will become abundantly clear, I believe. So God is just to punish the unrighteous. Now, the world that we live in is a dangerous place, but it was not created that way. God created the world as very good. And it wasn't until Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that sin entered God's 
perfect creation. And conflict has become part of the fabric of human relationships ever since. We see it right there in Genesis chapter 3. Violence and oppression quickly follow suit. It wasn't very long before the first murder took place as as Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And the history of the world is a history of death and destruction. But apart from the flood, there is no other epoch in human history that has been so bloody as the 20th century. It is undoubtedly the bloodiest time on earth apart from the flood that killed everybody except for Noah and his family. The century is horrible as hundreds of millions were killed in war and genocide, not to mention the over 50 million babies that have been killed through abortion in the United States alone since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And the approximately 46 million babies that are killed around the world every single year. So how do we make sense of this? How can a just God allow such atrocities to take place? I've gone at, to, through great lengths and great pains to explain again and again that God really is sovereign. But also that even though he is sovereign, he is not to blame for sin. Remember chapter 3, 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather is established. So what this is saying here is that God really is in control. God is in control, yet God never is the direct cause of sin. We see that in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And 1 John 1.5. For this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But the very best example that we can see of this is the cross. Hear what Peter says in his sermon from Acts chapter 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here we see that on the one hand, God is sovereign, but also that wicked men are fully responsible for their actions. That God never twists their arm and forces them to commit sin. That they are simply executing whatever is in their wicked hearts. So God did not force the Romans and the Jews to kill Jesus. Neither did he force James Egan Holmes to commit his horrific crime. But if God is sovereign, then why doesn't he do something about it? Might be the question you're asking. Why doesn't God stop it or at least punish those who do such things? Now, there's several reasons for this, and I, I really can't, in the time we have, go into this exhaustively, but one of the main things that I want us to see is that it is really tied to God's mercy, that God is waiting for his elect to repent. It's in the same way that, that we, we hope and we pray that Jesus would return, that we would rejoice in the coming of Christ. But we know that in God's mercy, he is waiting until the last of his elect come to saving faith. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. 
Remember back in Genesis chapter 15 when God promised Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. And he told them, he told Abraham that he, that he would come back here and possess the land because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. For 400 years, God waited to execute that justice. Now, I talked about this when we preached through Joshua. But in my own strength, if you sin me once or twice, I might be patient with you. But if you sin against me many more times than that, and I am going to be full of wrath. And apart from God's grace, I am going to try to exact my own vengeance on you. God put up with the sin of the Amorites for 400 years. He was patient with them. But when his justice came, and it came through Joshua and the armies of Israel, his justice came swiftly with finality. The Lord doesn't come speedily with his justice because the Lord is slow to anger. Nahum 1.3 The wheels of God's justice turn slowly, perhaps to our eye imperceptibly, but the wheels are turning. Again from Stephen Charnock. The longer a stone is in falling, the more it bruises and grinds to powder. There is a greater treasure of wrath laid up by the abuses of patience. So as people refuse to repent and become more and more entrenched in their sin and their rap sheet gets longer and longer and longer, they're incurring greater wrath against them. And God's justice will be poured out on their heads unless they repent and turn to Christ. The cup of God's wrath is being filled. Don't ever make this mistake of thinking that because it has not yet been delivered, that it's not coming. His justice, again, will be swift and it will be final. The wages of sin is death. The first half of Romans 6.23 reads, but death here does not refer simply to the end of life. It's a death that never dies in an eternal fire that will never be quenched. You really can't talk about God's justice without talking about his wrath. Again, they go hand in hand. God will not let one sin go unpunished. So rather than diminish his holiness, it is because of his commitment to holiness that God's wrath is a natural and necessary response to sin. John Owen defines God's wrath as a constant and immutable will in God of avenging and punishing by a just punishment every injury, transgression, and sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that there is no doctrine that is so generally abhorrent to man as that of God's wrath. So as I've talked about these things here this morning, as I'm talking about them, what is the response in your heart? How are you responding in your heart when you think about God's wrath? Are you trying to, to minimize it? Are you trying to deny it? This is typical in our world. In Paul's day, the problem wasn't that people denied or disbelieved the wrath of God, but that even though they knew that the judgment of God was coming against sin, they, they went on in it. They continued to sin, knowing full well that God's wrath was coming. And there's an element to which that is still the case as people's consciences are seared, as they press on in sin, but still, in their heart of hearts, they know that God's judgment is coming. So Lloyd-Jones described the state of affairs in, the, in, in, in his day, and it's our day as well, as rather, rather an ignoring of God's wrath, rather than ignoring God's wrath, they're disputing it and rejecting it. 
Now, as Raymond explains, Robert Raymond says that God's wrath must not be construed in any measure as capricious or uncontrolled or rational fury, nor is God in himself malicious, vindictive, or spiteful. God's wrath is simply the holy indignation that he feels against sin. It is his settled opposition to the unholiness of sin. God's wrath is his perfect and measured response to sin. Acts 24.15 says that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt and shame. Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13 says that if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, he has bent and readied his bow, he has prepared for him his daily weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is the text that inspired Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards says, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Now we know of at least two times that Edwards preached that sermon. The first time he preached it was in his own home church in Northampton with seemingly no effect. But when he preached it again a short time later in Enfield, the people were so terrified that they were falling on the ground. And people were holding on to the pews as if the earth would open up beneath them and swallow them at God's justice, at God's wrath. This thought should sober us. Even those of us who know that God's wrath has been averted for us. And it should cause us to be vigilant, to be faithful in evangelism. Just yesterday as I was flying home, I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman next to me who was a retired truck driver. And this, this man was a religious man. He thought he was a good man. He'd had five marriages and committed adultery throughout, but thought he was a good man. So I asked him, I said, well, what would you have done if you had been in that Colorado movie theater and you had wrestled homes to the ground? And then the, the police came and arrested him, and, and when it, the case came to trial, that you were called as a witness. And the evidence was indisputable. But then when the time came for sentencing, the judge said, well, we know, Mr. Holmes, that you are guilty, but I am a forgiving judge, and I'm going to forgive you. You're free to go. And the, the, the man next to me said, well, that would just be stupid. And I said, well, it's probably, you'd probably think it was a lot more than stupid. You'd probably hold the judge almost as culpable as the murderer for the travesty of justice. And we, we tend to think about these things when it comes to men like James Egan Holmes. But we really need to think about these things for ourselves. It's not just how could God forgive a vile sinner, somebody like James Egan Holmes, but how could God forgive me? How could God forgive you? If we really understand the depth of our sinfulness, we will understand that we are all 
in the same boat. That we, were, we are all equally guilty, just as guilty as James Egan Holmes. And so let the outcry that wells up in your heart against him and his sin rise up in your heart against yourself and your sin. I talked about this last week with the woman who was so grieved over her abortion and went to the the counselor saying, I don't know how I could be responsible for the death of an innocent life. And the counselor said to her, this is the second time that you have been responsible for the death of an innocent life. Because you are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, the only innocent life. It is your sin that caused Christ to be crucified. So when you see yourself, when you see your sin in the light of that, you begin to realize It's not just unfair that God would only save some, but it seems unfair that God would save any. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, How dost thou spare the wicked if thou art all just and supremely just? And that's the issue that Paul was dealing with in Romans 3.23. How could God demonstrate his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. So what's going to happen to somebody like James Egan Holmes? People are calling for vengeance. I'm sure the father of the six-year-old girl who was murdered is calling for vengeance. However, we're told in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we can trust God. We can trust that we don't have to execute vengeance for the wrongs that people inflict against us because God's vengeance is coming. The Lord has provided the state to execute justice, but ultimately the justice that's meted out by the state is really his. Proverbs 29, 26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And in Romans 13, 1-4, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God has ordained in his covenant with Noah that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his image. Genesis 9.6 So God has ordained the death penalty for such things. You might be familiar with, with Ted Bundy, the serial killer who killed many women throughout the United States. Now, towards the end of his life, he actually repented of his sin. And his final interview before being executed was with James Dobson. And in it, he spoke about God's power to forgive. And that he had forgiven, he had experienced God's forgiven. He said he was not seeking to be delivered from the death penalty. He knew that 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 was what was coming. But he had found God's forgiveness. Again, just as we who are in Christ have found God's forgiveness. But our culture here in Canada has drifted. 
we, we ignore things like this, this passage and don't practice things like the death penalty. And even in Colorado, even though it officially still has the death penalty, has only executed one prisoner since 1977, so it is very unlikely that Holmes will get the death penalty. However, Holmes will experience God's justice. If he does not repent and come to Christ, he will face the full wrath of God. But again, maybe your knee-jerk here is, is to think that's not fair. So when you ask the question, how could, someone for, how could God forgive someone like Holmes? It's the same way that God can forgive someone like you. So quickly here, God is just in the cross of Christ. Again, we'll see this more fully next week, but human beings have a very keen sense of justice. We're very quick to judge something as right or wrong. However, apart from God's grace, we are always going to draw the line in the wrong place, especially when it comes to ourselves and our own sin. And people in the world commonly tend to think of God's justice as being some sort of eternal balance scale where, where they think that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds and that they will be ultimately forgiven by God and welcomed into heaven. In our legal system, Lady Justice is seen as blindfolded and holding this kind of a balance scale. But God's justice is not blind. God's justice is omniscient. God's justice sees every single deed, every act, even those done seemingly in secret, every wrong thought, every wrong motive, and it exposes us as guilty, every one of us. And the writing is on the wall for every single human being, just as it was for Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 where a disembodied hand appeared and wrote the sentence on the wicked king. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. If it was this type of balance scale, we all would be weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's why it is so good to use the Ten Commandments when we, when we evangelize. Because we show people that by God's standard, we are all wicked. We are all guilty. We are all capable of the most heinous of crimes. And from God's standard, we have committed the most heinous of crimes. The Ten Commandments form the mirror whereby people see their sinfulness before a holy God and realize that they deserve his wrath. So we can only understand God's justice in light of the cross, where Christ received God's wrath for our unrighteousness, and we receive his reward for his righteousness. But here we have a bit of a problem in our, in our popular evangelicalism. People tend to think that on the cross, Jesus died for everybody's sins. But if Jesus died for everybody's sins and was punished there on the cross, then how do you explain God's eternal punishment of unrepentant sinners in hell? Because it would mean that God would be guilty of punishing people twice. When Jesus said, then it is finished, then what we really have is universalism. That means that everybody would be saved because the cup of God's wrath had been poured out on Christ for everybody. But Christ died for the sins of his people. Christ's blood was sufficient for everybody, but efficient for his elect. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't think of the nameless faceless masses of humanity. He was thinking about his bride that he purchased with his blood. 
Albert Moeller, in a, a blog about Friday's events, quoted the theologian Henri Blochet and his explanation of this truth. Blochet said that evil is conquered as evil because God turns it back on itself. He makes the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person, the very operation that abolishes sin. The, move, the maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete victory could ever be imagined. God responds in the indirect way that is perfectly suited to the ambiguity of evil. He entraps the deceiver in his own wiles. Evil, like a judoist, takes advantage of the power of good which it perverts. The Lord, like a supreme champion, replies by using the very grip of the opponent. So God used the most sinful, vile, deplorable event that ever took place in the history of the universe and used it to save his people. It's glorious. It's glorious. Something that none of us, no human being, could ever have concocted. So we are not declared righteous on the basis of our good works, whether past or present good works, or even good works that we're going to do in the future, but only on the basis of Christ's righteousness applied to us. When this happens, when the gospel has its effect on a sinner in the power of the Holy Spirit and people are changed, their desires, new desires are given to their hearts and they are then empowered by God to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, their mind and their strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. So their, their desires change and their behavior changes for the glory of God. We'll begin to look more and more like Christ. So quickly again is my, my third and final point, that God is just, so we should be just. Now throughout Scripture, we see that God has a special interest in protecting those who cannot protect themselves. Repeatedly in Scripture, we find reference to widows and orphans as representative of those who need protection. And biblical times, as is true around most of the world today, widows and orphans are vulnerable to oppression, vulnerable to persecution. And added to that list, we have the alien, who is the foreigner that dwells among the people of God. In Deuteronomy 10.18, we see that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. In Psalm 68.5, that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. In Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So God has a very clear mandate to protect the helpless. To protect the helpless. And brothers and sisters, that is us apart from Christ. We read in Isaiah about the suffering servant who came to give sight to the blind and to set the captives free. We were blind to our sinfulness. We were captive to sin. And Jesus Christ came to heal us and to free us I was at a meeting a few years ago in Louisville, Kentucky, where Brian McLaren was the key speaker. And uh, you're probably familiar with him. He's, he's very well known, and he's a proponent of the emergent church. And one of the, the major touchstones of the emergent church is the social gospel. That, that, that their primary focus is on helping people who are being oppressed and needy. And McLaren, in his talk, said that, that Jesus Christ came to, to deal with oppression and racism and the environment. Now, 
there's no question that, that Jesus dealt with, with some of those things. I'm really not sure about environmentalism in that, but, but there was a, a time for Q&A. So I, I stood up and asked the question. I said, well, what then happens to the, to the abuser and the racist and the oppressor when they die? And McLaren stopped, and he said to the, to the moderator, I'm going to have a bit of fun here. And as I'm standing there at the microphone in front of a few hundred people, I thought, uh-oh. And so he, he turned and he said, why is that so important to you? He said, I just talked about all of these important issues. Why is that so important? He said, are you proud of yourself for asking that question? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If I take a homeless person and invite him into my home and feed him and clothe him and give him shelter for 50 years and never tell him the gospel of Jesus Christ, never tell him that he is a sinner and needs a savior, and he dies and goes to hell. Have I really helped that person? And so he responded, well, don't you think those things are important to me? And I said, well, frankly, I think you're telling a bunch of half-truths. It's not either or. It's not either or. It's both and. Jesus did come and did heal and feed a great number of people who never came to salvation. But those miracles testify to the fact that he was the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. That he was coming to bring salvation. Coming as the mediator between God and man. And so McLaren was, was not very happy with me and told me to, to go and sit down but the point had been made. And I think we are, are very capable, very prone to falling into one of those two camps, either to go like the emergent church and focus almost entirely or even entirely on the social gospel and forget that man's primary, primary need is spiritual or be so fo focused on his spiritual need that we ignore physical needs. And we saw this back in, in James, that, that it's, it's no good just to say to somebody who's hungry and, and, not, and poorly clothed to, to go and be warm and well-fed without meeting his physical needs as well. Again, it is not either or. It's both and. It's not just enough for us to turn from sin and try to live holy lives. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So we seek to do these things because we are God's representatives on earth. We seek to do these things because we want to be like our Father who is in heaven. We don't do these things to earn our salvation. That has been fully accomplished in Christ. But we do these things because we love God and we love people. Amos 5.15 says, Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And Luke 11, 12, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So we are living in the face of so much that is evil and wicked in this world. And the, the question that I want to leave us with is what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? The primary way that we can, can make a change is through the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I've said before, future generations are going to look back and judge this generation for the way that, that abortion has not been dealt with. It is without question the greatest, the greatest tragedy that has taken place on this earth apart from the cross of Christ. 
So what are we going to do about it? Now, that's, that's not just a rhetorical question. We as a leadership are thinking about, about what we're going to do about some of these issues. And it's not just a matter of, of throwing money at a problem, hoping it's going to go away. Are you praying about it? Am I praying about it? Are we seeking to serve in areas that we can? I pray that the Lord would give us wisdom as we come face to face with these issues. Maybe the problem seems so big that it's insurmountable, but what do you think the world would look like if it had not been for a man like William Wilberforce? I don't know if you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, but I I highly recommend it. God raised up William Wilberforce as a member of parliament in England in the 1800s. In fact, started in the 1700s to bring about the abolition of the slave trade. He fought for decades, for decades, to end the slave trade. That's one man. So let's take hope, let's take heart when we think about these things and realize that that we can do something, that we can do something for the glory of God. So again, I just want to finish by by asking us to think about how we are responding to the justice of God. Are you recoiling from it? Are you rejoicing that His wrath has been placed on Christ for your sake? And then out of that thanksgiving, seeking to love God by loving others. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are humbled in your holy presence. And Lord, we realize that but for the blood of Christ, Lord, that we would be crushed under the weight of your just and holy wrath. But Lord, nonetheless, we come to you. We come to you boldly because we know, we know what happened for us on the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us to never take this for granted, and that you'll help us out of love for you and love for others to be your hands and your feet, bringing about your justice in this fallen world. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name.